2: Welcome to Wolfie, Wolfie, Wolfie and the Nerd! Public Radio's first ever Shock Jock show. Hey, nerd, what do we have for topics today?
3: Wolfie, Venezuela's President Nicolas Maduro and his remaining allies began working to deprive the National Assembly, now dominated by an opposition supermajority, of its institutional power.
2: Well, he can. <laughs> I cannot believe you went there. Yeah, you're so bad. I do what I do. No one can stop me. <laughs>
3: Okay, Uh, another topic. The 10 members of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations declared themselves a single market around which goods, services, capital, and skilled labor are supposed to flow freely. So, will Southeast Asia's 622 million people wake up in a new world in 2016?
2: Oh, you know what I would do? I would take those... Put them in a car... And c*** them all night long. You know what I mean? <laughs> that,
4: that is horrible. I can't believe you just said that.
2: I only have one way to fly, nerd. And that's too close to the sun. Next topic.
3: Uh, this one's kind of sad. Pierre Boulet, the French composer and conductor whose career spanned from the avant-garde post World War II era to the computer age, has died, according to the French Culture Ministry. He was ninety.
2: You know what the best thing he ever did was when he.
4: <laughs> you were too much. You're just crazy today.
2: I'm crazy today and every day, son. And if people don't think I'm funny, then they have no sense of humor. If they're shocked, then they just don't get it. There are public radio listeners who will say that if I had to apply my considerable talents and influence obliquely, perhaps we would have learned even more about what power and moral authority could mean in this generation. But I just don't care because people are And now a show about what shocks us. It's hosted by Colin McEnroe, and I'll care about what he says when he gets his d out of his. D- you nah, know I mean.
4: All right, that's what a public radio shock jock would sound like. Uh, we are going to be talking about shock today. And the reason we're talking about shock today very specifically is because it, what, it came to us because the Wadsworth Athenaeum right now does have an exhibit up that involves the work of Robert Mablethorpe. And of course, in 1989. Uh, when Robert Mablethorpe's work had been turned away by one major gallery. The Athenaeum was one of the museums that did exhibit it. And there was a tremendous amount of protest at the time. There was also a tremendous fever of interest. There were thousands of people lining up to get in and see this because it it was shocking. I mean, that was one of the reasons. There were a lot of other reasons that played into a big debate about the public funding of art uh, and why art that was so disturbing and shocking uh, either merited or did not merit public funding. But I mean, I'm just struck by the fact that right now, people are walking by that photo and by one of those, one of the more graphic or shocking photos from that exhibit, as if they're just walking by kind of nothing. Uh, that is, it's not shocking right now. And is it not shocking because nobody's telling them that it's shocking? Or is it not shocking because our standards of shock have shifted around? Uh, is there some other uh, better answer to all that? Well, we've got a great panel. Uh, we should say we did all this with the idea of doing it with the watcher without the name, and then they said they didn't want to do it with us. But that's fine. We've got great people here. Uh, Karen Finley, artist and author of several books, including a recently 25th anniversary edition of Shock Treatment. Uh, she'll be at the Mark Twain House and Museum on Friday, uh, the February 17th at 7 p.m. I'm sure you know the name. Or her pursuit of her right to be publicly funded for the work that she does. Um, went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. We'll talk about that as we go along. And a little bit later, Dennis Barry, co-founder of Barry Projects and director of Cincinnati's Contemporary uh, Arts Center, one of the other places that exhibited Mapplethorpe uh, in 1990, will also join us to talk uh, about that furor then. And then uh, joining us uh, from the NPR studios in New York, David Edelstein, film critic for New York Magazine, NPR's Fresh Air, CBS Sunday Morning, uh, and a regular guest on our show. We are excited to to say that. So um, I'm going to get uh, both Karen and David um, started on uh, this topic. And so David, I'm going to start with you and just say, is there a way to talk about the artistic purpose of shock? I mean, if if a creator, a creator of a movie, a creator of performance art, uh, a creator of anything needs to shock us, why does, what's the purpose of that? And maybe that's not a constant. Maybe it's a shifting set of reasons why anybody needs us to be shocked.
3: It is a shifting set of reasons. I mean, after all, in olden days, a glimpse of stocking was thought of as something shocking. Now, heaven knows, anything goes. Mm-hmm. So uh, a, shock, uh, a shock, I think, originally we can look and say it's the tension. It's It's built on the tension between what you can say in public and private behavior. Uh, That was originally, you know, the more kind of buttoned up the society, the easier it was to uh, shock the bourgeoisie or before there were bourgeoisie to shock, you know, whoever represented the, you know, conventional wisdom. Um, That changed, I, I think, maybe in the late 19th and the early 20th century maybe with the dadaists and the the more radical uh, modern artists of the early part of the 20th century when uh shock became seen as something that had value for its own sake so you would create a you, you know in a certain social context coming out and doing something uh breaking a taboo was thought to be enormously healthy, was thought to, you know, release all this energy. To, was, was, I mean, Karen Finley can talk about this much more explicitly, though not too explicitly on NPR. But, but um, you know, what it, what it means to, to give the audience that kind of catharsis, to kind of drive them crazy by doing that which is forbidden.
4: Well, Karen, uh, I will invite you just to talk about sort of the, the – for you as an artist, uh, what's the purpose of shock?
0: Well, I I think that, first of all, thank you for having me be on the show and uh, participating in this conversation. And my response in thinking about shock as an artist and using shock as content or as a device is varied in terms of the social taboo, as David was speaking about, I'm trying to direct my art to be in discourse with. So I would be saying that uh, for myself as an artist that I'm thinking about the shocking events that are happening in the world and then creating work that's in discourse with, with that subject matter.
4: So does that mean I'm going to ask both of you about this but Karen I'll stay with you right now that you you implicitly need something to butt heads with in other words there has to be a tripwire there has to be a taboo if in fact you're going to get the effect you're talking about
0: Well I wouldn't say that it would always be a taboo because it could be a, it could be policy it could be a political issue it could be about with war it's not always about events that have to be dealing with uh, sexuality and the body. Uh, if we are be thinking about what happened in Russia with Pussy Riot, the band, uh, they were playing music, and it was about playing music within the church and uh, opposing and deviating that space. So, it, so I think that the term of shock is much more expansive than what you're offering
4: all right.
3: Uh, well, I'm prepared to expand. Okay, um, great. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, it could be, I mean, speaking Wait. of Russia, I mean, it could be a chord change. It could be a chord change in Shostakovich's work that's in there to provide a little bit of a shock and, you know, that the party stamps on. You know, it could be anything that that – goes against what's perceived as the uh the established order the well-being look it's it's all we're on incredibly shifting sands here uh, and and we have been for a long time um back when uh, uh when I was on the village voice um Uh, There was a cover story by C. Carr on Karen Finley that talked very specifically about uh, an old and famous yam routine. And the following week, uh, Pete Hamill, a good, solid liberal guy, thundered in outrage, you know. And then a bunch of us the week after that thundered back. And there was this huge cultural fight on, you know, what's appropriate, what's sacred, what what are – as john waters would come to say what's good bad taste and what's bad bad taste and you know if we could all agree on these things then nothing would nothing would shock us anymore the fact is we can't agree we all see these things differently there was shock once upon a time in seeing divine you know follow uh, a dog in john waters pink yeah. flamingos and and eat a eat a freshly laid Doggy turd. Maybe that—that's still shocking, but that doesn't mean that there aren't retrospectives for John Waters at the Museum of the Modern Art, and that he's now not this sort of accepted in the mainstream as this avuncular, camp sophisticate. Um, We've—it just—it just—it—it it just is the context. It's the context. Yeah, go ahead, Karen. Yeah.
0: Something that's, um, since David was bringing up my life as an artist and. That I have created work that has uh, created outrage in the press and politics and the audience. But for me, when Jesse Helms was uh, presented my work on the Senate floor, I realized that I really started to realize that I was engaged in this kind of, uh, kind of like almost a sexually abusive public relationship with. Jesse Helms or the individuals that were so uh, shocked by my my work without seeing it, and I kind of almost, you know felt that when uh, you know Helms or people would be talking on and on and on about my work, oh, she smears chocolate on her nude body, and does she touch her breasts, and it became. I uh, I felt like a, a sexual response or a very thrilling uh, participation by Karen. You're getting experience. me hot already. Just talking uh, that's about that's what it. I was hoping, and that the that the cultural uh, response becomes mm. like a very public, uh, you know, erotic response in itself. Well, I,
4: I, I, that can't have come as a huge surprise, right? You didn't expect to get naked and smear yourself with chocolate and not have anybody care or object. I mean, wasn't part of it to start that conversation?
0: Uh, no, I didn't think that it was. I didn't think that the work would go to the Supreme Court or that I would be having death threats up mm-hmm. and that the government would be spending millions to uh, to fight the support uh towards artists or artwork i didn't think it was going to be no that wasn't my intention um i think my intention at that time was just to be part of the avant-garde or just to be part of the the art world in uh lower manhattan and it was i think it was as simple as that in terms of my my youth
4: we should say, and this was established before we went on the air that both David and I had, on separate occasions witnessed uh uh Karen's performance. Uh, actually, the time I w- witnessed it, I kept thinking it's cold in here. She must be cold. This is just, <laughs> just seems like it must be cold. Um, but that's me.
0: So I well, wanted. They didn't. They probably didn't get their their funding for uh for the for the heating. Yeah, they, it was. It I'm was. Sure, it was probably some. It was
4: Wesleyan. They could have dipped it in. Me. Play, oh, at, at yeah. Westland. Yeah. Okay.
0: Well, they I think they're supported. They've
4: so. got an endowment. Uh, <laughs> they could have, they could have turned up the heat if they really wanted to. Believe they me.
0: They can. Yeah. So
4: speaking of turning up the heat, I want to ask both of you about this. I'll start with you, Karen. I mean, obviously, these things do shift, and uh, the the standards shift, the, and the standards of what. Shocks enough to begin a conversation like this will shift. And I don't know. I, I sometimes think that there's sort of a um, almost hysteria of crowds about the th- thing about this. I mean, maybe, you know, Maplethorpe could have happened in 89. And if nobody talked about it as shocking, if nobody got worked up about it, then the rest of the world never would have been shocked by it. I mean, some of it's just people hopping up and down and saying, isn't this shocking? But I'm also assuming just the passage of time alters standards. Um, And Karen, as an artist who wants to press up against boundaries, um, do the boundaries keep moving?
0: I think that boundaries keep moving, but I think that sometimes the the subject matter... Uh, can be staying the same, which is talking about whether it's talking about gender issues or talking about war, like I said earlier about policy. But the way that we're going to be talking about those issues, the cultural movement changes just as in uh, as in film or in literature. The, the, the cultural movement will shift in in terms of a of a framing of for artists to, you know, look at at, at, su- at a subject matter.
4: Um, David, I believe uh, in your vast litany of accomplishments, w- w- you have the coining of a term. It's uh, you that we uh, owe for the term torture porn. Uh, maybe you can talk about that coinage and, and how it interacts with what we're talking about today, the, sort of a, the use of shock in art.
3: Well, it, it actually, it one of the things that first attracted me to to movies i'm 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 proud and sad to say was the kind of gut bucket horror movies that i used to see at the strand theater in downtown hartford or the webster or you remember those long gone wonderful theaters where you know kids could go and see double features with all sorts of really horrible ex- <clears throat> exploitation movies that helped me get through a very painful and isolated adolescence. and I'm still a horror fan but I I came to see that more and more a lot of the um the movies that were attracting mainstream audiences repelled me to a degree that I I I wasn't certain any society that needs that much catharsis there's maybe something wrong with we were starting to see movies that would make a spectacle of people being tortured, and by torture porn, I didn't necessarily mean that people were literally getting off on it. Sometimes it was just like, "Ooh, shock me! Shock me more! Shock me more! Ooh, that's really ooh ooh! I love it! I love it!" It became, in it, just a sort of addiction to seeing the body violated, to seeing, you know, the most nihilistic scenarios um, imaginable, and I. I didn't have any answers for why this was. I just wanted to sort of shine a spotlight on, on all these wriggling little maggots and say, what is going on here? Stephen King famously said in a book that a horror feeds the alligators of the mind. Mm-hmm. And I think it's an open... This is not a discussion about horror, but I do think it's an open question, you know, at what will satisfy those alligators and what will create more alligators. And I worried that shock, that this kind of shock was becoming a kind of addiction and that it wasn't necessarily healthy.
0: When huh. you're saying, uh, David, that is so interesting about bringing up horror as a place for responding to, you know, shocking emotion. And I've had some similar Questions in looking at horror films such as Night of the Living Dead, and you know, looking at films where you're seeing bodies that kind of just, for me, that film makes me think of, you know, the My Lai Massacre or thinking about during, right, of...
3: That's a profoundly, that's a masterpiece, that movie. And that is a profoundly political movie and was shocking on all kinds of levels in 1968 and 69 when it was released. That's a very important film. And I think it's an example of the moral... Uses of shock, as I think many of David Cronenberg's films have functioned in the same way. Particularly a film just uh, out now on on uh, DVD called *The Brood*, uh, which has an extremely uh, uh, graphic image of a, of a woman giving birth to a child and sort of removing and eating its placenta, and 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 also you know films that he he tried to use to explore the kind of 50s and early 60s repression and then the eruption of sort of sexual appetites that that was sort of a metaphor for the counterculture in a movie called They Came From Within or, or Shivers. Uh, so there are really profound and moral, I don't, I don't mean to say moralistic, but I would say defensible moral uses of shock. And then there are things I, that are not.
0: I think that it could go as a place for the society or culture to be expressing shock within, you know, in in the theater, or within the dark, where they're not necessarily able to be expressing the public to the shock of seeing, you know, bodies at war, bodies, you know, from 9-11, where it really... The, The horror film is a place where that can be expressed. And I think that, you know, that shock and awe, the term that's overused in terms of 9-11. I I mean, I am been so interested why all these type of vampire films were so uh, popular uh, in the beginning of, you know, the 2000s.
4: You know, on, on the other hand, there's that whole issue of cooptation. I mean, who's using who, and 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 what happens when commercial culture gets its lunch hooks on uh, on on something like a zombie? I mean, a zombie is now a profoundly commercialized entity. You know that everything that the zombies them, are camp now. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're camp. They're practically Six Flags.
3: You know, I mean, they weren't really. To be fair to Romero, they weren't even they weren't really zombies. They were they were ghouls. They represented plague. They, represent, they represented plague, which was a metaphor for a certain kind of conformity of spiritual deadness. And now zombies, flesh-eating zombies, are, are, they're a joke. I mean, of course. And, and, Karen, I'm also wondering if when you look
4: back— um, you know, and, and look back at the the, the things that you've uh, written about in books like Shock Treatment. We're in. You know, you're trying to do something as an expressive artist, but the reality is, Je- you and Jesse Helms are kind of using each other in a way. I mean, uh, Jesse Helms is. is well, I know that's a disgusting <laughs> idea, but uh, but Jesse Helms is boosting his political profile by going after you, right? This chocolate smeared woman. He doesn't really give a rat's patootie whether you get naked and cover yourself in chocolate, but he can pound away at you and and use. You to boost his political profile. Meanwhile, in some ways, you've got an establishment to push back against. Um, but maybe you want to push back against that statement.
0: I that is, I, I, I've thought about those issues uh, for many, many years, and an analysis of thinking about being a private person then put into the public uh, conversation about. Uh, Decency and I- indecency, and so w- what you 're saying I, I i've thought about uh, uh, ab- about these issues, but I wanted to get back to what you 're just earlier saying about the commodification mm-hmm. of let uh, 's say the vampires uh, or zombies for uh, amusement parks, and that speaks to a history uh, in, especially in America of the casualization. Of violence or the casualization of traumatic imagery, whether it's going to be having souvenir postcards of lynchings, and or that we are seeing on the front page of uh, the New York Times, seeing a, a picture of Saddam Hussein being um, uh, hung, and so it's the casualization which is definitely part of the process of of shock of, of doing the exact opposite to you know a shocking uh, shocking act this is the core. Of this is out. the
3: core of it, I, I think. When, when we talk about um, there are so many examples in culture of the female body being commodified or being defaced in certain ways, being the eroticization of rape their, their, um, uh, or or mutilation even in some cases on television. Um, there, there is a world of difference between say a male uh, artist doing this on television or in a movie, and a performance artist, a, a woman like Karen. Defacing herself in certain way, or you appropriating that in order to make really the opposite kind of statement. I mean, it really does depend who is the one who is delivering the shock.
4: We got a, a phone call here from Brett, and I think he was going to take us in an interesting direction. So uh, here's Brett. Hi, you're on the air.
0: Hi, yes. Yeah,
1: <clears throat> uh, question about how long do you feed the alligators? Well, until they're no longer hungry there're going to be more alligators they're going to come back for more food later on the only way you're not feel a bite the only way you're not going to feel a bite is if they become vegetarian
4: So I I think I followed that analogy. And maybe uh, we should switch from alligators, David, to uh, caterpillars uh, or centipedes, excuse me, human (laughs) centipedes. So, I mean, I think that might be the argument he's making that somehow or other, the part of this that's about just jolting the brain for these baths of neurochemicals, um, that part is going to require a certain amount of escalation. It's going to habituate to whatever was freaking you out in, in an interesting way at the Strand, you know, when you were 16 years old. It's going to need something more, right? So that's why you get to the human centipede?
3: Or is it more complicated than just a simple escalation of shock? I do think we hunger for shock. I do think we—that's we, we um, that's the principle for, for, for much art, that the we become uh, inured to certain things in front of our eyes. If things become— routine and shock, we, we need to be jolted out of our complacency for many reasons. That's why people do drugs, you know, in order to just alter their brain chemistry slightly. And the same thing happens when we're shocked. And it is interesting, we do learn about ourselves from charting the things that once shocked certain people and, and now don't anymore. But you know, even as I say that, I'm aware that we are, we're an incredibly divided country right now. We think we've evolved but but we may see on the front page pictures of, of, uh, of a gay couple kissing that will be used to shock a certain percentage of the population in another context. It will be held up as an image of horror, as an image to rile them up to take social action. So we actually you know we're still I'd, li- I'd like to think we moved beyond the point where our fascistic mayor Rudolph Giuliani would close down an exhibit at the Brooklyn Museum of Art just because Because he could and because it offended his his personal sensibilities. Uh, But I don't I don't think that's true. I don't I don't think we're anywhere near there.
4: All right. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, We're going to come back to the alligators and centipedes of the mind. Maybe the human centipede is just uh, anxiety about Obamacare. You know, there's no informed consent. It's worse than a death panel, really. All right. We'll come back after this.
0: Shock
4: Shock to the system. All right, we're back. We're talking about shock, shock in art, shock in culture, uh, and how our standards for shock either mutate or don't. Uh, David Edelstein, film critic for New York Magazine, Fresh Air, and CBS Sunday Morning, is with us the whole way. So is Karen Finley, artist and author of several books, including the recently recently released re released twenty fifth anniversary edition of. Shock treatment. She's going to be at the Mark Twain House uh, on February 17th at 7 p.m. Joining us now, though, uh, for this segment is Dennis Berry. Dennis Berry, co founder of Berry Projects and director of Cincinnati's Contemporary Art Center in 1990 during the Maplethorpe exhibit. Uh, Like the Wadsworth Athenaeum, uh, Dennis Berry's uh, museum exhibited Maplethorpe. The difference being that here in Hartford, nobody got arrested, but Dennis did. Uh, So, first of all, um, welcome to this conversation. Yes. Welcome to this conversation, Dennis Barry. Uh, And second of all, maybe just sort of set that scene for us. This was uh, what had happened, obviously, was that Mapplethorpe had been turned away uh, from from an East Coast museum. And Cincinnati might seem a fairly improbable community to step forward and say, oh, no, we'll show that work. We'll take that work. So what was that process?
1: Well, Colin, first of all, great to be on the show with you and with David and Karen. I admire their work. And I'm not sure about the alligators, but we'll go forward. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, what was it like? It was interesting that, you know, Maplethorpe, the whole crisis was created by the fact that the Corcoran Gallery in Washington uh, turned down uh, the exhibit for fear of the kind of political consequences. And that really opened up the whole world, uh, the whole museum world, to interference on the part of government. And how Cincinnati got it, well, you know, the Contemporary Arts Center in Cincinnati has a long, long history of showing provocative work. Second oldest Contemporary Arts Center in the country. So showing something like Mapleshorpe wasn't particularly out of the norm for our museum, Uh, but it certainly became the focus um, of everybody's attention uh, once uh, it became controversial in uh, Washington and then moved on to Hartford and other places. (laughs) And what was it like? It was horrible.
3: Hmm.
4: Was it horrible?
1: <laughs> yeah, it really was horrible. You know, we uh, it's interesting listening to Karina David and, you know, thinking about what shock does and thinking about how society responds to it. At the time, in 1990, uh, or eighty-nine ninety, Maplethorpe was shocking for a good portion of our society. Uh, it wasn't shocking for the people who normally frequented a contemporary art center or a Whitney museum, where works like that were typically are, are are often shown. But in our society, with the fear of homosexuality and the fear of AIDS and racial stress and the Jesse Helms of the world and the kind of tension created by all that, uh, Mapleshorpe uh, was indeed problematic for a lot of the population of Cincinnati. I guess we never thought, though, that it would reach the heights or depths that it did in the terms that we would actually be confronted with uh, legal action and that I would have to go to jail for showing the work of an artist
4: well, you know, I want to talk about that. I'm going to bring in our other guests as part of this conversation too. Um, and Karen, as you're listening to Dennis, I'm and as I'm listening to Dennis, I realize that I've probably romanticized the the stress of, of that period. In other words, one thing that I frequently catch myself either thinking or saying is, you know, it would be really great if if art got people that excited and that upset and that rebellious and that supercharged. I mean, you know, David was talking about Ophelia at the end of the last. Uh, uh, segment and, and the elephant dung Madonna, but the truth is, Chris exhibits stuff all the time now. Nobody does anything about it, and and it. I mean, I would have assumed prior to listening to you and Dennis talk that you, Karen, miss the good old days when when you you really could get people really really riled up and genuinely shocked by what you were doing with yams. But but maybe you don't miss that.
0: I I don't miss that. I think uh, it. It's it's emotional for me to speak and to think about those times now, mm-hmm. but uh, I think that I was very interested in making use of uh, using the system uh, and using the political system of trying to uh, to fight for uh, free expression and First Amendment rights, and also that our suit was really about whether the government can apply decency when awarding funding, and we did lose, and more was lost than uh, just um, my funding and the other artists, but what was lost was, uh, for me, is that I, I, I was not able to be funded, and I, it took me I, I could not perform and lost access to be able to show my work. Uh, my artwork was re- was returned from museums, and, I mean, I had, of course, look at the bigger picture, but it was, it was very difficult to be having, uh, you know, death threats or having your work examined and to have institutions, many, uh, I don't think that the arts has ever recovered here in this country. Many yeah. nonprofits closed their doors forever, and many individuals could not deal with the stress uh, of, of working in the arts and changed their careers and uh, doors closed not everyone was as strong as, uh, as Dennis or myself.
1: Karen, I'd like to expand that just for a moment because I, I tend to agree with you. You know, a lot of people look at what happened in Cincinnati, for example, as a victory. The fact that we, we didn't go to jail and we could continue to show the Maplethorpe work, a great statement for the First Amendment. But in the wake of all that in the 1990s, you saw a tremendous amount of self-censorship in the museum world. And so what Karen's saying about her own work doesn't surprise me in the least. I know that this happened time and time again. No one wanted to go through what uh, our institution went through and others went through in terms of fighting for the First Amendment.
4: And I guess then that raises the question. And David, I'll pull you in on this one too. And maybe you and I have the least right to talk about this because we don't get the death threats that Karen got, and we didn't go to jail with with Dennis (laughs) Leary. The Dark dark Knight. I I was forgetting your Batman review, which I actually (laughs) at a certain point. (laughs) <laughs> I, I stopped at letting you even look at comments at one point. Do not look anymore. So uh, okay, but I mean, you know what I'm saying here. That when when they create this shocking art, there are some pretty real consequences for them, and and maybe ripple effects as they're describing uh, with the shuddering of art. But on the other hand, what's the what's the alternative? The alternative is to not épater le bourgeois, right? The alternative uh, is a bad one too. I mean, it seems as though this this cycle has to happen. Uh, art has to occasionally shock in order to, to to gather up our attentions.
3: Well I think we're also talking though about public funding and that's uh that's always going to be a question when when uh when the politics in the country changes and and we just as as a society we just don't have enough of it. But even in places like God, I remember in the nineteen eighties I was um staying with a friend in London for a month and I went to the trial of a, a director of the National Theater who was being prosecuted by this woman named Mary Whitehouse, this uh, oh my God. Uh, moral champion named Mary Whitehouse because of a play he he directed called The Romans in Britain, which had a scene which was actually a metaphor for uh, – not a metaphor, but it was – it sort of dramatized the Romans invading Britain, but it was really about the uh, English and the Irish. And it featured a uh, a rape scene, a, a very violent male rape scene. And this guy went to trial for it, and of course he he was um, he was acquitted ultimately. But months and months and tens, if not hundreds of thousands of d- uh, pounds, I guess, uh, at the time. And um, and it and it did have a chilling effect on what the national theater and the RSC and many of the more well-funded theaters did after that but now it's funny in terms of getting the work out i mean uh, this was all the, all this stuff was sort of pre-internet now you can click on so many sites and see things that would you know turn your hair white no matter i mean you you name it it's being done on the internet so it's a little bit different now than it was say in the 1980s or even the early 90s we do have access to this stuff the, the question is can artists make a living can it be publicly displayed And can artists make a living from doing it?
4: And, and I no. think also, can we experience it collectively? I mean, Dennis, I'm assuming... Yes. can we experience it collectively? Yeah, I mean, this yeah. Internet is this very sort of weird, lonely place in a lot of ways. And, and Dennis, I'm assuming that when you had to explain to people, whether it was your board or your family or whoever was talking to you about, well, why are you going to jail right now? Why is this worth doing? Um, that, I mean, what was your answer? Why was it important to show these photographs, given what the consequences were?
1: Yeah, you know, again, well, I, I thought there were multiple reasons. One is that uh, the work was valuable; it did have content, it did have value, and we chose to show it. And that is often the case, whether it's the National Theatre in London or whatever, that you see value in the work, that it has something to say, and it and it it's part of your program and your mission. And that was critical for us. And then the most, I guess, the most important issue was that you really get down to the First Amendment issues. You get down to what you can and cannot say. And if you truly believe in it, you believe in supporting things that are often, you know, not easy for the rest of society to accept. Uh, You're talking about some of the films that are being shown and some of the things on the Internet. I find some of the most I find them more troubling or disgusting than I do shocking. But uh, I also think, well, you know, you have the right to do it. You have the in our society. If you're an open society, you have the right to see it or not see it.
4: Well, we're going to take can a break I step, right now. Can I step? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. No, actually, go finish finish your thought, David, and then we'll. Take well, a break. well, I just
3: wanted to say that when when maybe when we come back, I I wonder if we could just step back for a second, and have people describe individual works. Like Karen, mm-hmm. maybe take a very controversial piece of yours and and tell us, you know, without spoiling the mystery, what what it was that that you were trying to th- through this vehicle you were trying to say that could not be said in any other way or what these a particular maplethorpe work you know that that really incensed people uh actually did accomplish from an artistic perspective and how it did widen our mind and use shock as as a way to get into our bloodstream in a way and our minds the way, uh, the way other things couldn't.
4: All right. So that you have homework for the next 90 seconds. Um, also <laughs> when we come back, the other thing I really want to talk about is the current environment of trigger warnings where some of the pressure against material deemed shocking is not coming from Jesse Helms anymore. It's coming from essentially a liberal college campus environment where people have decided that certain things are too unsettling for them to see. All right. So we'll do all that when we come back.
2: I'm doing these announcements as a Karen Finley tribute. Hey Karen, do you have any tips about how to get chocolate out of your... Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Mr. Peanut. For show pages, articles, and photos of the here and now staff covered in Nutella, go to our website, wnpr.org Colin. On tomorrow's show, the most disgusting foods consumed anywhere in the world. And now back
4: to Colin. This has really been a wonderful week. We started out with a show about the concept of ugly uh, yesterday. Today we're doing a show about the concept of shock and tomorrow we're going to do a show about the concept of disgusting, particularly as regards food. So uh, discussions of placenta and John John Waters' uh, dog poop scenes have set up tomorrow's show uh, more brilliantly than we could have ever hoped for. So right now we are, as we say, talking about shock, shock, talking about how shock operates in art and culture with David Edelstein, America's greatest living film critic for New York, Magazine, NPR's Fresh Air, and uh, CBS Sunday Morning. Karen Finley, artist and author of several books, including the recently released 25th anniversary of Shock Treatment. She's going to be at the Mark Twain House. I do. I think you just just talking. You know. I mean, don't get overexcited here. Uh, on February 17th at uh, 7 p.m. But who knows what's going to happen, actually. And also with this is Dennis Berry, cultural historian, museum director for several institutions, including Cincinnati's Contemporary Art Center and the 1990 Maplethorpe exhibit. He currently leads Berry Projects with his wife, Kathleen, who makes him promise every day not to get arrested when he leaves the house to go off to work. Um, so um, so actually, uh, let's go to the assignment that uh, David gave you. So Karen Finley, um, having pondered that for a second, um, maybe you want to talk about one of the works that you did that had a certain shock value to it uh, and that you felt was necessarily that way.
0: Well, I thank you for the opportunity. I'm going to talk about a piece that i am actually been working on recently called Sext Me If You Can. And as an artist, I was, and as a citizen, I've just been outraged by people's lives being uh, totally ruined because it's been discovered that they sent a sext of themselves. And uh, especially with uh, younger with younger uh, people and even politicians because they've, it's been discovered that they showed their body and everyone get, just goes crazy about it. So the project that I've been doing uh, is that I actually invite people to send me a sext. They commission uh, me to create an artwork based on one of, uh, of their sex that they send me, and I did this at the New Museum and uh, last year, and the public would uh, purchase like 10 minutes to sext me with images, and they were given a room to do this in, and then I would see the images and create artworks, and so it was speaking about the idea of uh, looking at the composition of the body, you know, the, the eroticism of, of the body, and to allow that and, and to kind of get, get rid of the, the shame towards, towards showing and sending uh, nude pictures of oneself. It doesn't have to be nude, but, you know, within uh, uh, one that's con- you know, considered uh, exciting or, or arousing,
4: we can use our imaginations. Uh, yeah. we, we know what you're talking about. And, and so Divis Barry, I mean, obviously, with the, I don't know whether you want to talk about Mapplethorpe or something else. I mean, there were specific images that were pretty unforgettable from Mapplethorpe. Um, but how do you react to David's question?
1: Well, it's interesting. You know, a lot of people talk about the X portfolio which dealt with this uh, sadomasochistic imagery. Uh, but I think the most shocking image in the show, in the Mapplethorpe show, was man in a polyester suit. And actually, it seemed to be the one that got the most commentary from columnists at the time, uh, um, including William Buckley. Uh, and my, Man in a Polyester Suit is an image of a black man in a cheap suit with a zipper open and a very large penis hanging out. And uh, I think that shocked for so many levels, but I thought it was important that uh, you know, it's not the image you expect to see. It's, if, if he were fully nude, I think it would be easier to handle. But the fact that he's in this suit and that all you're doing is focusing on his penis was the shocking part of the of the imagery. But then you go back to the deeper issue. And the deeper issue is that Maplethorpe often dealt with the issue of race and sex mm-hmm. and how we see the black male and as an object of sexuality. So A very, very powerful image, and it still is today. I thought it was very interesting. It recently came up for sale, I think, at Sotheby's or Christie's. I can't remember. And if you went online, they blurred the image. So Mm -hmm. so even today, in 2015, they blurred the image of the man in the polyester suit.
4: That's good to know something is still shocking. David, did you want to talk about a specific example, or did you just want theirs?
3: no i I wanted to hear it from the from from people who went to jail for these things <laughs> or or actually expressed them on stage i i um uh i've gotten more squeamish as i've as i've aged probably and i i i probably when I was at the village voice i was a real i kind of came of age with the punks or at least um affected some of the some of the aesthetic of the punks at the time and anything that shocked was by definition a good thing and now i suppose i'm looking at it a little more critically and i'm because i'm seeing so much shock that's done by i i think the repressors or mm-hmm. the up, the oppressors uh um you know people like Trump talking about you know throwing immigrants out of the country mm-hmm. or 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 really just sort of vile sexist hack'em ups that show the torture of women now i'm I'm being a little more critical and separating what I think is is healthy shock from unhealthy shock. And I think that... But
4: I want to talk to Dennis also about the question of, I mean, there's certainly that. The thing that you're describing exists. It's real. It's deplorable. I I totally get what you're saying. On the other hand, a lot of the pushback is coming back from, as I said, going into the segment, uh, from the other side, from... a. Trigger warning oriented campus driven culture that's sort of saying wow there's just stuff that we don't want to see things that we don't think are funny things that we I mean Chris Rock and people like that are saying they won't play college campuses because there's too many things that are just taken off the table so it's not always Jesse Helms I, Dennis is it any different when it comes from a different set of sensibilities
1: I don't know if it I don't think it's any different I think it bothers me as much as what we're, as the actions of the Jesse Helms and others that followed. You know that we have this kind of uh, on college campuses is inability or this desire now not to discuss or to present or uh, because it doesn't fit in with your uh, your beliefs or your code or you know your your ethnicity or whatever it might be, and this kind of also the sort of revisionism looking at things. You know, I, I find it fascinating that names are being taken off of buildings and whatever. Uh, based on the standards of two thousand and sixteen versus the standards of nineteen sixteen you know it's just uh, uh you know where does it end where does our- our society be when it becomes that self censoring the dialogue ends and and we don't get the kind of conversations that we do need on campus or anywhere else, or you can
0: just have well, the same I, kind of fight like yeah, go ahead that, yeah I'd like to interject as a college professor. Mm. Uh, and I did go into education then after my NEA uh, problems. But I actually think that it is important to have these conversations and to be more sensitive in, in, in discussion and to have have an understanding about uh, triggers. I think that maybe right now, initially, the conversations might be going too to. To one side, but I think we're talking about also representation. When I was creating my work, and also during um, uh, Maplethorpe show. For me, I was talking about the representation of women, and women even being represented in the art world. A lot of the problems I was having was because there were few women in the art world or even being on the cover of The Village Voice, and so a lot of the uh, disgust or outrage was just the audacity of, of women journalists or women artists uh, taking you know, representing themselves. And this discussion continues, and with Maplethorpe's work, at that time when he, he as a white man, was representing uh, the black male body, now it is it is different, and that work is seen different, and that work has a diff- speaks differently in terms of the white man speaking for the black, uh, representing the black male body. And hopefully that we can have more opportunities where, you know, the uh, black male artists, black artists can be representing themselves and that there's more opportunities. And I think that on college campuses that we do need to have more sensitivity towards uh, uh, trauma. And I think that some names off of buildings, it is time to change. Uh, if you're referring to with the Confederate flag, I think that it is, it is time to remove uh, these symbols. And people might not expect that from me, but I find that the Confederate flag is a symbol of trauma. And so there, I do have feelings of uh, difference now uh, about when do, when does symbols become hate speech? Mm-hmm. And I, I, really, I, 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 I just couldn't
3: that. agree more. I couldn't agree more, but I also agree with Dennis. So I guess I want to say that, that – uh, Uh, Microaggressions, we have to remember that microaggressions, so-called, are real. And have been going on for a long, long, long time. But I think the issue, as Dennis said, is are we going to have a conversation about it or are we going to try to sweep it off the table altogether and have people fired for what seems to us like, you know, ridiculous things that, you know, that upset certain sensibilities? I think we have to recognize that these things are absolutely real and do have a corrosive effect over time on on women, on minorities, uh, and and I think that we need to engage with that. The question is, uh, you know, the pendulum has just swung too far in the other direction right now.
4: We're going to have to stop it right there. Thanks so much to David Edelstein, to Karen Finley, to Dennis Barry. What great guests. What a perfect uh, conversation about shock. Well, there's no perfect conversation about shock. but. Betsy Kaplan produced as close to perfect as it could be, thanks to Wilfie again on the board. We'll be back tomorrow with really, you can't imagine. You can't imagine how disgusting.
2: Kidding me? I was doing the weather.